Thank you, Patrick, for that. And by the way, you do look fly. Um, hopefully it comes through in HD as much as uh, it does here live. Um, I'm so excited to continue this series, to continue the series on nonviolence, to continue our community and learning together and being together. And it's an important one. So I just want to pray for us at the top, just that we would be people of peace that uh, have a way of making peace anywhere and everywhere we go. So join me in prayer. God, thanks so much for what you're doing here. You say in your word that peacemakers who sow in peace harvest uh, kind of a righteousness, God, a, a yield of peace. Help us, God, be those people. Help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in situations of violence, sociologists say we have two options, and really only two, fight or flight. Now, fight is defined as violent action, sometimes involving weapons. Often it has retaliation and vengeance at its core. Flight is defined as passive, submissive, cowardly, and fearful surrender. Fight or flight. It's easy to take this phrase as maybe exclusively for battlefields or back alleyways, but the reality is, unfortunately, that our bodies, our minds, and souls are wired with these responses, and we take them everywhere. Fight or flight, at home, at work, and on the streets. A spouse or roommate's dirty dishes you get a little bit angry about. A coworker's microaggression. An injustice in our city streets. Violence occurs to you or near you. What do you choose? Fight or flight? Think about it. What's your lean? Do you lean as one that kind of armors up, that kind of gets out a little bit? You're talking to your friends. Maybe you're uh, kind of puffing up yourself a little bit. Uh, maybe it is like fisticuffs. I, I don't know. But perhaps it's just kind of talking a big game. Uh, getting a little bit mad, doing those side chats, you know, you know the ones, right, where like you're in the same room, but like, you start a side chat being like, this person though, right? Maybe that's how you fight. Or maybe it's flight where you're like, you know what, I don't want to really get involved in this. I'm going to back up over here because over there is where the conflict is, but then there's that person that bothers me, so I'm going to get a little bit lower and kind of do that. And then that, there has to be another side where I kind of get over here. We find a place of peace for ourselves, but usually it means that we're kind of like small at the end of the day like even trapped, curtailed because of the way that we were like, this feels like, I don't think it feels like peace, maybe it feels safe. Fight or flight, a contortion of who we are or acting out in ways that maybe we don't really like at the end of the day, but feel like they make us safe. So what's your lean? Is it maybe fleeing or is it fighting? Perhaps it changes depending on the area of your life. What if there's a different way what if there's ways and options beyond fight or flight? We don't have to fight, right? We don't have to flee. What if with God's help we can face what God is putting in front of us? What if we can face the situations of the day? We can face even our enemies, even acts of evil or wrongdoing. What if we can face those? That's what we're going to unpack in the next few weeks. Thankfully, we have some time to unpack this. So if you're frustrated and you're like, let's unpack it all today. Like last week, I had so many questions. There's a lot. And hopefully, you know, you're going to the workshop. We had some people at the workshop that it was great to hear their questions. It was amazing. But just know we're unpacking them week after week. So please, let's have some patience as we learn more together. This is our second talk in our series, Nonviolence, How to Seek Peace and Pursue It. At home, 
and at work and on the streets. If you missed our first talk, please check it out on the website. We talked about how the way of Jesus, just a plain reading of Jesus' words, deeds, and life, is the way of nonviolence. He says, it, it was said to you, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we see how Jesus does that even on the cross. As he was sent there to die unjustly, an unjust sentence, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He talks the talk and he walks the walk. While this nonviolence shines throughout the story of Jesus' life, this message of uh, kind of aggressive and active nonviolence, it's been twisted throughout history, especially more recently, to mean just sit tight with passive inaction in the face of violence to us, to our community, to our neighbors. When there is a wrong, just keep your head down. You know, just keep, keep quiet, move along. When we look at Jesus' life, we know that's not what he does. What about when we look at our own? Do our lives reflect this nonviolent life of Jesus? In the face of violence, fight or flight. Or do we inhabit something completely different? Do we face what's in front of us with God's help? Tomorrow we celebrate MLK Day. And I hope that we remember MLK and the other heroes of the civil rights movement, that they tried more than just fight or flight. They actually did something different. And I hope that we remember that and celebrate that and choose to embody that ourselves. They tried to be something other than passive, quiet, inactive. And it wasn't easy. Many of them looked to Jesus in all things, in everything, As a source of inspiration, yes, but also as a source of connection. The one that helped them do this work of love, do this work of nonviolence in the way that Psalm 34 puts it, to depart from evil, to do good, to seek peace and pursue it. To actually have a connection with a different way that's not of this world. Jesus talks about this on the Sermon of the Mount, a stump speech he gives for God's kingdom and God's way. Jesus' vision of the way the world works and how we can work within it, even if that makes us feel and seem crazy, upside down. Maybe others will call us that if we follow the Jesus way. And we spoke last week about Jesus' plain words to love our enemies found in this speech. You know, we have it recorded in our scriptures, but it's likely that Jesus just went, you know, different places and gave the same speech, almost like a politician giving a stump speech for a way, a campaign, a message. This week we're going to unpack... Uh, Not just that Jesus said, love our enemies, but the spirit in which he invites us to actually do that work, to love our enemies well. Now, at the top, I want to say this. You know, loving our enemies is different than just loving people maybe in our house or our friends. You know, some people might be like, Josh, I need help with this friend. I need help with my spouse. I need help with Great. I hope I can help you out. I hope God's helping you. I hope you're doing okay. But this first two weeks is really for enemies. And we know the enemies are found on the streets. They're found at work. And yes, there are tragic circumstances where they're found even at home. But I just want to clarify here that these first two talks are really about loving enemies, enemy love. Because that's really distinct for how Jesus says, let's love people well. Next week, I can't tell you about it now. I'm really excited about it. We're going to have a lot of stuff that can help at home, at work, and on the street. So hold on just one more week. If you have some conflict, you want to get some nonviolent resolution, I hope God's giving me a word. Let's pray on it, right? The other thing is, 
I, I want to say this. You know, naming evil, which is one of the things that Jesus invites us to do when we love our enemies and we have this kind of defiant spirit of nonviolence, that's a serious work, to name evil. It's actually a gift God's given us to shed light, to expose darkness. But not everyone agrees on what that is. And so part of what we do in the church is we discern together. You know, we can start this process of nonviolence. Someone would be like, actually, I don't know if you got that right. This is called practice. This is called doing this work together and in humility. Again, we'll have more words on that. But I just want to say that from the front. This is Jesus' way of loving our enemies. It's creative spirit for how he does it. And we practice that and learn from God, and learn from one another. Like I said last week, I think one of our biggest obstacles, we have a lot of obstacles uh, to our nonviolent life. And I think one of the biggest ones is not really trusting that this process, God wants us to have full dignity, to have full self, to be a God-given being made in the image of God, as opposed to a punching bag that we feel is already worthless. So what's just another hit? Jesus invites us to the nonviolent life in the fullness of how God sees us, not as a way to have a physical or spiritual strike, simply confirm our worthlessness. That's not how Jesus invites us to nonviolence. Nonviolent action isn't passive agreement with lies that would say that we aren't enough. So why fight anyway? Nonviolent action has a different spirit at its core, the spirit of Jesus. The spirit of Jesus' call to nonviolence is defiant, It's sober about the evil that's happened to you. It's empowering of one's own agency to address the evil. And it's eager to let God expose the evil and have it shamed and turned away from, apart from the person and the people that are entangled with it, but really the system gets exposed for fraudulent, not God's way. Nonviolent enemy love names evil. It compels agency for that person that's affected by violence. And it provides the opportunity for repentance for an offender to stand against the evil they just committed. It's powerful stuff. Now, as we go into it today, for better or worse, Jesus' defiant calls embedded in some like pretty specific cultural passages and practices and phrases. It's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. That's what we'll be looking at. Now, sometimes Jesus' cultural references go well for us, and we can still like use them in 2021. And sometimes we're like, is that exactly it? I'm not sure. Here's kind of a Mixed example, right? In 2021, we have tons of laws like Good Samaritan laws. Hey, like help your neighbor, help a stranger. But we kind of lose sight of the fact that who were Samaritans? They were enemies of the Jewish people. It's not just like helping a neighbor. It's if your enemy helped you. It's if your enemy was the one that said, you know what, I'm going to go the extra mile and, and serve that person. And then there's like a heroic reward for it as the religious leaders of the day didn't. Okay, so we're, we're kind of like halfway there, right, with the cultural message. But it's important to know, like, the context. This context reveals what God is doing. It reveals what God is saying. And I think in this passage today that we're going to read, in our wider secular culture, you kind of see how the words and phrases are used. You know, again, I'll get to that in a second. It's actually sometimes an exact misuse of what Jesus is saying. So let's get into the passage. Let's go straight into Matthew 5. And it should appear on your screen. It's going to be the first line first. Now let's start with Jesus' framing of this entire passage. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now some of you are thinking, Josh, you said this was a nonviolent sermon. Come on now. Teeth? Pulling pulling teeth? This is crazy. So back in the time that Jesus is talking about, this Levitical law, it's actually all about what happened to you. Someone mess with your mouth, mess with their mouth. Mess with your tooth, mess with their tooth. Eye, their eye. 
And that can sound weird and rough, and it is. But actually, it was something that was used back then to lean a little bit into actually restorative justice. Because the laws of other lands and other nations, nations that didn't follow God, it was something different. Hey, if someone messes with your mouth, you kill them. If someone does this with your tooth, they're gone, right? It was, if there was an offense, you can do actually a greater offense. You can have a greater retaliation because who should mess with you? You're you. Come on. Who's messing with you, right? But that's not what God said. God said, actually, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Let you and your enemy see that there's a different way of doing justice. And let the nations, the people around us see that God does it differently. That there's restoration at the heart of this. Now, again, in 2021, it probably doesn't sound like that. That's because 2,000 years ago, more than that, Jesus already revised this. God revised it again. But Jesus says, let's go further. You've heard it said, tit for tat. Violence for violence, an offense for a retaliatory offense. But Jesus interrupts that violence and says, no, that's not the way it goes. That's not the way it is anymore. He continues, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. Now, on the face, this might be pretty confusing since Jesus calls us to nonviolence, and it is an act of resistance. And the next three examples plainly display that resistance. But the word that's used here for resistance in the Greek means to stand against. To stand against. It's a word anthi, anti, against, and then stema, stema, which is to stand, right? And you see here that uh, when you look at different passages in Scripture, I'll just point out just uh, kind of a genre in the Hebrew Scriptures, and then uh, an example uh, in the New Testament, a specific one, you know, in the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures, this word stand against is used a lot. And it means an army here being like, let's go, and an army here being, let's go. And I believe Nate has an image of that from some people's favorite movie. It's called The Lord of the Rings, right? You see all these armies that are standing against spears, hooks, weapons, right? And they're like, it's about to go down. That's what is happening. Jesus is saying, no, we don't do that against evildoers. We don't resist that way. And yet, there is a kind of complexity to this, because that's about flesh and blood. But the other way a passage where we see this word is in Ephesians, uh, the letter to Ephesians, and it's chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. It's, it happens at 13. I'm just going to read it, because it's a beautiful passage, and it really speaks about the spirit of nonviolence. It's another passage about it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now here it is in 13. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, there it is again, in the evil day, and having done it all to stand firm. Actually here it's resist, stand against, Paul clearly says this is about resisting spiritual evil. It's not flesh and blood. So we can see kind of in these two scriptural examples that this passage Jesus is saying, it's kind of like, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer with violence, with worldly violence, the wages of this world, but instead interact in this creative, nonviolent resistance. This mini tour through scripture lets us know that Jesus is inviting us to not armor up to not kind of act like we're about to go on the battlefield, but instead to de-escalate through actually naming the evil. That actually is really important. To engage one's agency to face it instead of our old habits of fight, 
fight or flight. And crucially, we're not against the evildoer, but instead we're fostering an interaction, creating a world where that evildoer sees their actions as wrong and it actually allows them to repent. So what are Jesus' three examples of this that we're going to see next in the passage in Matthew? You know, even if you're not a regular churchgoer, even if uh, you might not be a Jesus follower, I think you can recognize these just from passages or from words that we use just in our everyday speech. Here they are. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you to take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. You know, recognize this from anywhere? You know, turn the other cheek. Give the coat off your back. Go the extra mile for someone. Our broader culture has actually reimagined and dulled these words of Jesus to simple recommendations to slavishly and often passively suffer. It's as if signing up to follow Jesus is signing up to be a doormat. This should be a huge tension for us, though, as Jesus followers, because signing up to follow Jesus is signing up for a life of humility. It is signing up for a life of insignificance to the world, but significance to God. It is signing up for a life that's familiar even with suffering. And yet, this, is hum- this humility, this insignificance, this suffering is all done knowing that you are God's beloved, the apple of his eye, a person worthy of every good gift and made in the image of God. That's the core part of the defiant spirit of nonviolence. And of course, the fact that your enemy has all those same attributes. They too are God's beloved. So given all of that, Jesus gives us these three phrases, these three kind of examples, and they're wildly cultural Uh, kind of, there's a cultural context for them. So I'm going to unpack them for us. And to do that, I would love a volunteer from our audience. Patrick, would you come up, please? One second, I've got to get my mask. So we have three. Can you be over here? Now this first one. You know, we often remember it as turn the other cheek, but there's actually some specific directives here, right? What does it say? Everyone with me. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. So we have to kind of approximate distance, but this is also like in play fighting, they usually do this. It's not like, you know, you you do something. So if I got my right fist, right, my right fist right here, and I'm trying to uh, say, you know, it's for Patrick, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, if I'm doing a regular, you know, Muhammad Ali roundup, is that your right? No, it's not right? It's a different one. I've got to do a backhand, and a backhand would mean what? It would mean that Patrick is lower than me. He's a servant. He's even an enslaved person. It's a different way, so I would do a whoosh, right? That, that didn't hurt Patrick, or may, maybe it did, like emotionally, but if Patrick then turns the other cheek, now where am I? So now I have to somehow, so turn the other cheek, I have to hit him, but if I hit him with this hand, in the cultural context of the day, it would mean that I'm saying that Patrick is my equal. That Patrick is the one that I can kind of be squared up against. And I just hit him like a servant. And if I try to say, well, maybe I can do kind of something weird here. This is a hand in Jewish culture that would be a hand that's unclean. My wife said that I can't say exactly why, but it has to do with, you know, some body parts and bathroom and different things. So I'm actually left with, I have to say you're my equal, even though part of why I slapped him was to say you're not. Through a simple turn of the cheek, Patrick has become defiant. He's standing against me, and I'm actually in a position where I don't know what to do anymore. I'm confused. Patrick did that by turning the other cheek. Claps for Patrick. Woohoo! 
Now, the next one is, if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. This is a lawsuit. And again, this is in Jewish culture where there should be a community. There should be an element of family. Why, why are we suing each other? This is a, a wrong thing. So if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, what do you do? You actually do this. You say, hey, you can have this. I kind of like this hoodie, you know, but it's yours now. And then you also would take this off. And let me tell you, again, kind of like our last example, there's a little bit of indecency here. It probably just wouldn't be a t-shirt, right? Like there's some different kinds of clothing that would go on. So it would leave me a lot less robed than I am now. You're actually saying to that person, hey, you want this? You're going to do this in the court of law to me, your brother, your sister? Well, don't just have the thing that you're suing me for. Have it all. No, actually, like all of it. And if you've read some Hebrew scripture stories, you know, it's not usually the person that gets naked that is ashamed. It's the person that sees nakedness that's ashamed in the kind of religious culture of the day. You're saying, hey, this is wrong. But I'm going to do something to actually expose just how wrong it is. So you feel that. You see it. And lastly, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. This is actually not a Jewish culture thing. It's a Roman culture thing under Roman occupation. Uh, it's something that uh, people did to say, hey, you're actually just labor to me. If you know the story where Jesus goes to the cross and someone find, they find someone in the crowd that say, hey, Simon, can you help this guy? He's struggling a lot. And we need someone to help him take this cross because we can't just be here all day. And what does Simon have to do? He's a subject to the Roman Empire. So he, he just has to help. Their bodies are just seen like they're bodies of labor. Just their ethnicity, their, their ethnic story is like, sorry, you got to be roped into this. So part of saying, oh, you're saying I need to carry your pack one mile. I'm going to go with you the second. Hey, get your pack. Come on, let's go. Like, you're not up for two, right? The, the walk for justice, the walk and talk that's starting tomorrow. Like, you know, one mile, it might feel the burn a little bit. But two miles, we might be a little bit cold. And you're saying to that Roman, uh, you know, person that says, hey, you got to do this for me. Let's go too. Let's double it up. I'll carry it further. You're actually pointing out the absurdity of the law itself. Did y'all know that? Because a way that we've made these kind of terms and sometimes are all too passive cultures to say, oh, you know, just go the extra mile for someone. Just turn the other cheek. Someone asked me at the workshop, what if we run out of cheeks? I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about, but I think that's the old way, right? Jesus said something different. There's a, a way that we can be creatively defiantly nonviolent, And there's a huge payoff to that. You know, we can look at this, that it does cost us something, right? It all costs us a kind of embarrassment, right? I think so. A kind of like we look foolish. There's personal honor that's maybe a cost with turning the other cheek. There's uh, losing your most basic possessions when you give up your coat and your cloak. There's the act of labor and time when you're going that extra mile, mile two, there's cost, but there, there is a payoff. It's a kind of worship that names evil. The act of violence to your body was wrong. Someone hitting you was wrong. The greed of a lawsuit was wrong, especially in a religious context that celebrates God's generosity. The occupation and oppression by the Roman government that looked at others' as bodies and mere labor is wrong. The payoff invites agency and dignity. So an offended person just doesn't walk away in flight or respond with violence in fight themselves. Instead, they winsomely demand honor and recognition as an equal before the eyes of God. They shame the system of greed with their lack that embarrasses the viewer. They force the empire to see the ludicrousness and arbitrariness of its rules. 
The payoff is that you witness to the fact that there are no permanent human enemies in this. Since every action invites the person to consider, did I, did I really mean to do that? Should I have hit that person? Did my greed go too far? Are these rules God's rules? As I was thinking about this text, I couldn't help but think about a 90s reference that some of you guys might love or hate or not know, but it's Steve Urkel saying, did I do that? Like, really, did, did I do that? It allows someone to step back and be like, am I the reason why this guy is naked right now? Like, am I the reason why I don't know how to hit back and I, like, feel like a fool? Am I the reason why someone else is going ahead of me and I'm chasing them for my pack now? Did I do this? Did I partner with this? It kind of creates a drama that's so big that it separates that person from their very actions that are wrong. And it gives them a chance, an opportunity to repent. This is amazing stuff from Jesus. What a teacher. What a prophet. But now can I present a hard truth to us? A really annoying and difficult one? Jesus doesn't say, watch me turn the other cheek. Jesus doesn't say, watch me give my outer garment. Jesus doesn't say, watch me just go the extra mile. When a Roman person says that to me, an officer. No, to a crowd, a diverse crowd of newbie disciples that were just picked by Jesus. Strangers, folks from cities and rural areas, religious insiders and those estranged from faith. He says, you heard it was said. But I say to you, turn the other cheek. Give them your cloak and walk another mile. Jesus, why? Why can't I just applaud you? Why can't we just say you're great with our words and then just kind of live our lives? Why can't we just lift you up and make you our king and then do what we want? Jesus refuses to be a golden calf that is simply worshipped superficially. True worship for Jesus looks like a changed life and curiosity about what it will mean to become a changed person. Simply put, to try what he's offering us in this stump speech about the kingdom. Look, this is a new way. You've heard it was said, but I tell you. Now join, sign up, follow me. It's better this way. Happier are you if you do it. So because of the seriousness of that, the rest of our time is going to be exploring how we do that. And I don't know about you, but I think, I don't think that this is going to come this week by someone like, you know, fighting me, and then I literally get to turn the other cheek or maybe disrobing for the cause of the kingdom, of course, or walking an extra mile, even if it's apart from the walk and talk, right, for justice. These are specific cultural references of the time that Jesus makes, uses to make sense for his hearers. And I think it did make a lot of sense for them. These are things that could have happened to them any day. I'm not sure if that's really true for us. And yet we know that there's a secret sauce to all of these, a creative spirit of defiance that names evil, that compels agency, that provides opportunity for repentance since we are against evil, but not flesh and blood. As we think about how Jesus' words could become relevant for us, I'm going to look at a few common sites of retaliation in our community. Actually, yeah, like our community, I think. Places where we eat the stale bread of fight or flight. Specifically, our words and then also our response to microaggressions. Yeah, I said it. We're going there. So with our words, we can name evil. We have agency, and we can write a way for people to find repentance and not be destroyed through the pen, but actually find life in it. Remember last week I talked about those four little girls that were killed in a bombing at Birmingham. MLK gives the funeral eulogy just a few days later. 
I think at the time, MLK is like 34. He's a young man. He dies young. He's 39 when he dies. But think about that. You're, you're a preacher. You're a pastor. You're, you're a leader. You're an activist. And then there's this bombing. And the whole nation sees it and observes it. Four little girls dead in the church. And they say, King, would you speak to us? We want to actually pull up the words of MLK to listen to how he embraces this call to be defiantly nonviolent at the funeral of the four little girls who were killed in Birmingham. And yes, even though we might not be asked to speak at funerals or give statements to the press, we actually are always speaking all the time at home and at work and on the streets. And I want us to think about our language, to actually disciple our speech like it says in the book of Proverbs, like Jesus asks us to. And I think the contours of MLK speech can inspire our own. So let's listen to them together. MLK names the evil crime. He uses his agency to speak and to set it up so these little girls are actually speaking beyond their grave. Who do they have words with? It's not just their direct killers, but for everyone who accepted a negative piece. MLK doesn't call people out. He actually calls them in, into speech from dead martyrs. You killed these four little girls. See how, but listen to them. That's powerful. Does our speech name evil or does it skirt it? You know, both sides have been bad. But, you know, didn't they deserve it because of what they did or this or that? I just hope that things get better. Or even in more subtle ways, sometimes we hide it in our speech. The events at the Capitol, what happened in Ferguson, what took place in Sandy Hook. Sometimes our tongues don't like to land on a cold, hard truth. Insurrection at our nation's capital. Murder of a black 18-year-old, a massacre of children. Say it plain. Naming the evil isn't mean. It's not controversial. It's not divisive. It's truth. And truth sets us free. It doesn't matter if blood is on our hands or not. Remember, we're talking about Jesus here. Jesus does a really good work with people that have his blood on their hands. So let's not be afraid to speak the truth plainly. Once we name the evil, do we engage as one who has power to speak life or death, to call people into life and not just leave them out frozen in death? Do we take God's gifts of words seriously, and do we leave room for possibility? These girls have something to say, MLK says, because I believe that you, their killers, might listen. That's why I'm taking up space in a funeral where their family's right there crying their eyes that I'm taking up space at their funeral with their parents grieving to speak to you the ones who killed them. What an act of generosity. What an act of grace. What an act of kindness. If we see what MLK is doing, if we see what we could do with the power of our speech, that's bold. MLK makes it plain. In a funeral, to speak to the killers of the slain, not just the family of the slain, that's grace. And so I stand here this afternoon, says MLK, to all assembled here, that in spite of the darkness of this hour, we must not despair. We must not become bitter, nor must we harbor the desire to retaliate with violence. He makes it plain. No, we must not lose faith in our white brothers. Somehow we must believe that the most misguided among them can learn to respect the dignity and worth of all human personality. He uses his breath at a black funeral with black death and black grief to still speak hope to white folk, to say, I believe y'all can be saved. Now, I know that can be a controversial thing for some people to say, given where we are in 2021. I'm just being honest. 
But MLK says, it's worth my breath. I think it honors the family. I think it honors the girls. Maybe we're not there yet, but MLK was there. And I think Jesus is there to speak words that feel like, how could you even give them that possibility? But if we're followers of Jesus, that possibility has been given to us because Jesus' blood is on our hands. Can we be people of mercy and grace? MLK gives these words that offer hope for transformation if people choose to do so. He leaves the choice up to them, but indeed he gives them a choice. That's powerful. It's winsome. It's nonviolent. Now, we're just going to touch on this. Honestly, if this drives you to the workshop, that's great. But now what about a nonviolent response to microaggressions? Again, I said it. I know, y'all, this is hard. We have to, we've come to find so much safety and security in our outrage, in our bringing others in the fire of our anger, and of course in our eye roll and side eye emoji, of course sent to just only the like-minded friends amongst us, right? You don't, you don't send that usually to the person that offended you unless you, you miss the text and it's one of those, oh my gosh, did I just do that? It's just to our friends. But first I think we have to acknowledge when we're in this kind of microaggression response, are we armored up? Are we seeing kind of a preemptive lob where we're like, you know what? Not today. I'm not going to be silenced by you. I'm not going to have you talk over me in class again. I'm not going to have you say this thing about who I am. Is that the case? I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know the specific example, but sometimes we're armored up and we're ready to fight. And the question is, is that person really there to harm us? Again, sometimes they really are, but sometimes they might not be. Why are you so angry? Where are you really from? Doesn't taking a Sabbath kind of make you lazy? We have a choice for how we respond to real microaggressions. But remember, we can say not just that, oh, we can check to see if we're armored up, but we can actually say that things are wrong. We can name the evil. No one's saying not to, and specifically not God. We have agency. God loves agency, though, as we move towards the offender for the sake of our own dignity, theirs, and the possibility of change and transformation someday, somehow, and definitely not necessarily by you. But again, it's just what could happen. Uh, there's a really horrible story. Um, I'll just give you a really brief version of it. It was really sad to me. Um, I think, you know, for black folk, after George Floyd died, I mean, it wasn't that we just had like one microaggressions. They were just like, you got a microaggression. You got a microaggression. Like, they just like, it was crazy, honestly. Um, I would be like, ask a black folk, but maybe don't. I don't know. Um, like, ask someone. Maybe not. Um, they'll let you know, really. Um, some are shaking their head in the room. But someone, uh, it, it, some people know this at ECV. Uh, we actually did a, a letter as black pastors. We were really sad. We were really frustrated. Um, and we were like, man, what do we do to respond to Ahmaud Arbery's uh, killing? At that point, I don't think a lot of us knew about Breonna Taylor. George Floyd hadn't been murdered. And we're just like, well, in our sadness, how about we come together as an act of, again, like nonviolent defiance to write something together? And we did. And it was a letter from Black Vineyard Pastors. Some of uh, us here signed it at the church. Um, and then we sent that out. And it felt so good to just like kind of share, not like a kind of uh, eye roll emoji, but like, no, we are defiant. We, we do have something to say. And we're going to say it all together. So you don't have to ask us line by line by line, one by one by one. So get this, guys. Someone uh, after George Floyd was murdered emails me. Right? And I have to be really like, oh, Jesus, give me the spirit of nonviolence. Because even as I say it, I'm like, wait, am I, am I kind of in it? But okay, I'll, I'll try to be good for y'all. Um, emails me right after George Floyd is murdered and says, this, and it's a white person. It's a white man. And says, hey, I know you guys wrote that letter as black pastors after Ahmad was killed. So you guys are probably going to do another one, right, for, uh, 
George, can, I, can you sign my name on that for me? I'm like, so it, it's a letter for black vineyard pastors, and we may or may not do another one. We actually hadn't talked because we're still grieving. And you're saying, can you sign your name? So to be honest, right, because the thing you've got to realize is this is practice. We're practicing how to do this. No, no one has to be an expert. I'm not an expert how to do this. I'm just really convicted it's the way of Jesus. So what I did back then was I just ignored this. I was like, I can't, right? But part of what I'm learning of who I want to become would be something like this. Hey, I don't know if you noticed that this was a letter from black pastors, signed by black pastors. So do you actually want to write one maybe for white vineyard pastors? I'm going to be a great thing to do. God bless you. It could have actually had a great response. He could have taken that and uh, kind of fueled something else. It would have been really helpful that didn't happen in the vineyard. And I would have had a way of being dignified myself. I don't think that took too much energy for me to say. I didn't have to teach them or explain a lot. But it was actually a response. I think I did flight. I don't think I did fight. And hopefully in my retelling, I didn't fight too much in terms of passive-aggressively getting some energy out and making some jokes. But I actually do would say, like, in honesty, like, I wish I had done that. And I didn't because I was really hurt. And I didn't look to God in my hurt. I just looked at my hurt and said, I don't want to feel this anymore. That's the hard truth of, I think, our cultural response to microaggressions. We've got to ask ourselves, are they fight? Are they flight? Or are they facing? And I'm just going to leave that there and not say much more about it. If that stirs some things up, God bless you. Come to the workshop. Seriously. Because we're going to do a lot more unpacking of that exactly. So I don't know your microaggression story. I don't know what it is. Maybe it is the where are you really from. Maybe it is why are you so angry. Maybe it is doesn't taking a Sabbath make you lazy. What I do know is that we don't have to armor up. And we can instead ask God, again, not to face, not to fight or to flee, but with God's help to face evil and respond with creative defiance. I'm going to go straight into our invitations from here. I want you to reflect this week on evil you've experienced from enemies. And I want to ask you, did you name it? Because a lot of us have been taught not to name these things, to put our head down, to keep walking. Did you name it? That's the question. It's not if you did the fight, not if you did the flight, just did you name it? Because it's important to know that you can name evil that you experience. A lot of us might come from backgrounds where we're taught that we can't do that. Jesus rejoices when we say the truth about something, even if it's naming evil that you experienced. Second one is, think about an example where you could have used your words differently to be defiantly nonviolent, and maybe where you could have responded to a microaggression differently. And then think about how does that feel to you? I probably get my best nonviolent responses about six months after a thing happens. Just being honest. I'm hoping that window kind of shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until I can finally be a person with the help of God who says something like that in the moment. I'm working on it. I'm convicted that way is beautiful and better in the way I want to follow. But I have absolutely no pressure and no feelings of guilt if I don't do that in the moment. God knows that he's working on me. And I know that God's working on me. And this is a life full of grace. But I want the better way. I want the Jesus way. And lastly, ask God for capacity to believe an enemy's transformation enough to act differently. And thank God that Jesus believed in your transformation enough to act differently, to act nonviolently for your sake. We're going to have three ways to respond. We're going to have communion. We're going to have a call. Uh, we're going to have a, a communion. We're going to have worship. And we're going to have a prayer call. And right now I just want to invite you in a simple way uh, to orient your hearts to God. Patrick's going to explain communion a little bit more, so that's going to be an invitation for you. In communion, we always say if you're a follower of Jesus, if you'd like to become one, you can do that. I'd just like to invite you. 
part of the reason why we can have this foolishness with how we treat ourselves and our life here, part of the reason why we can have this freedom, even this knowledge of grace that our way of getting it right isn't the standard. It's just simply trying and failing and fumbling before God is because we can have a relationship with Jesus. If that's something that you want to have, if you want to start following Jesus, I encourage you to say yes to Jesus and then to take communion as Patrick gives us that invitation. But this way of thinking, even MLK's invitation at a funeral from death to life, it's all because life wins in the end. And when you say yes to following Jesus, there's a way that life comes into places of death and darkness. And so if that's something you want today, just encourage you to say yes to that. And later on, we're going to worship God. We're going to say that God is above, that God is the one that can help us in all things. That's where our help comes from. Join us together as we continue in worship.